All right, well again, uh, good morning, Faith. It's great to have you here with us. We are kicking off a brand new series today that we have entitled Equipped. But before we dive into our series and what that is all about, would you just take a minute with me and pray as we invite God to be part of this. Father, thank you uh, that we get to do this, that technology is available, and that it makes this possible. God, we just uh, ask for your help. In the midst of all of that is going on, there is still just so much brokenness in our world. Father, we want to pray for the Arbery family as they are just mourning, as they are just struggling. God, I don't, I don't have to pretend to know everything that happened and all the details, but I know a life has been lost and a family and a community, they're heartbroken over it. God, we pray that your truth will be revealed and that justice, true justice, would take place. Father, thank you for good news in the midst of all that's going on. God, thank you uh, for Brett and for Mandy Gove and for the delivery of a baby girl. Father, thank you for little Michaela, that she is here, that she is safe, that she is healthy. We just pray that you would bless the Go family and you would draw that little girl to yourself. Father, today, just as we think about your word, please speak your truth to our hearts and help us to see how it applies to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, who loves marine biology? Yeah, two of you out there. All right, so here's the deal. We're going there anyway. All right, so um, in his book, Everything, author Dr. David Jeremiah, uh, a book that we've used as a resource in this series, he introduces us to the Mariana Trench. Now, if, if you're not familiar with the Mariana Trench, it is known as the deepest place on earth. The, the trench is in the western Pacific, and it's basically this canyon that runs in the bottom of the ocean floor. Now, by way of comparison, Mount Everest stands at about 29,000 feet high, 29,000 feet above sea level. The trench at its deepest point is at about 7,000 feet deeper than Everest is tall. That's deep, people, really deep. Now, life at the bottom of the trench is kind of treacherous down that deep. Like at the bottom of the trench, it's dark. No light gets down there. It's just pitch black. At the bottom of the trench, it's cold. It runs somewhere between a balmy 34 to 37 degrees. But at the bottom of the trench, it's the pressure that will get you. The pressure at the bottom of the trench is about a thousand times greater than it is at sea level. The, the pressure at the bottom of the trench comes in at about three tons per cubic centimeter. That is squash you like a grape kind of pressure. And so you would think between the cold and the dark and the pressure that life at the bottom of the trench is impossible but it's not. The, the Mariana Trench snailfish has shown us otherwise. The, the snailfish is this fish that lives at the bottom of the trench. Now, how does it do that? It's all about how the snailfish has been equipped. For example, the snailfish, it has holes in its skull that allow its skull to expand and contract under the pressure. Not only so, but, but the snailfish, it, 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 there's a, a genetic mutation. There's a mutation in the gene that is responsible for the snailfish's calcification of its bones. And it causes the majority of its bones not to harden the way that they should. They instead, they stay cartilage. But again, it allows the snailfish's body to expand and contract under pressure. 
And then finally, the snailfish, it has this interesting thing that goes on inside of it. There's, the, the, there's a distinct chemical that it produces in its body that helps stabilize its constitution. So it has almost as much pressure on the inside pushing out as it does on the outside pushing in. You see, because of how God has uniquely equipped the snailfish, it's living down there in the trench. And it's not just living. It's not just surviving at the bottom of the trench. It's actually the top predator down there. Because of how God has uniquely equipped the snailfish, it is not only surviving in this cold, dark, pressure-filled world that it lives in, it's thriving there as well. Now, here's the thing about pressure. Pressure is not unique to the world of the snailfish. Pressure is something that you and I live with as well. I know because you tell me about it. You've told me about the pressure that you're experiencing in your marriage or the pressure you're experiencing in your relationship with your kids or your parents. The pressure that comes with some of the friendships that you have. The pressure that, that comes with what's going on at work or the pressure you're experiencing in your finances or the, the pressure you're experiencing over what's going on with your health or what's taking place emotionally or what's taking place spiritually. And if ever there were times where we felt the pressure of life, we're in them now. There's all kinds of pressure. And as I speak with people, they talk to me about how they want to deal with that pressure, how they want to respond in the midst of it. We want to do well when it comes to pressure. We want to do well with the challenges that we're facing in these times. As people who follow Jesus, we don't want to fall victim to the brokenness that surrounds us. As people who follow Jesus, we want our faith to make a difference for good in the challenges that we're facing. As people who follow Jesus, we want to live in this life in such a way that it prepares us for the next one. Even as we live in this cold, dark, pressure-filled world, we want to respond these ways. But oftentimes we find ourselves wondering, like, can we really live like this? Can we really do that? Is that possible for regular people like you and me? Is it possible for us not to be crushed by the pressure? Not to just survive under pressure. But to actually thrive under pressure. See, with this series, I'm hoping you're going to realize that the good news is yes, you can. I'm hoping that you're going to realize that God hasn't just equipped the snailfish, but that God has equipped you. God has equipped you with everything you need to meet the challenges that you're facing and to meet them well. That God has equipped you with everything that you need, not just to survive under pressure, but to thrive there as well. See, you may or may not realize this, but the Bible actually talks about how God has done just this. In his second letter, the Apostle Peter writes to you and me about this. Listen to some of what the Apostle Peter says here. It's actually really radical stuff. Peter says this. He's speaking of God. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, 
having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to your knowledge self-control and to your self-control perseverance and to your perseverance godliness and to your godliness mutual affection and to your mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that he has been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that is a mouthful on Peter's part. So, so just take a minute with me, if you would, and let's, let's just really quickly think about and run through th- this, this bigger section in some smaller chunks and grab hold of what Peter's saying here. In verse 3 and 4, Peter tells us that God's divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life. In other words, God's divine power has given us everything that we need to follow Jesus well. And then he tells us that God's divine power has given us everything we need to escape the corruption of this world. In other words, God's divine power, it's given us everything we need. We don't have to fall victim to the brokenness that surrounds us. And then in verses 8 and 9, Peter tells us that we actually can avoid becoming ineffective and unproductive and blind and forgetful. In other words, your faith really can make a difference for good in the challenges that you're facing. And then in verses verses, um, 10 and 11, Peter tells us that it's possible to confirm our calling and election, that we can actually position ourselves so as to receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of Jesus. In other words, you can live in such a way in this life that it gets you ready for the next one. See, what Peter is telling us in this bigger section is is that it really is possible to meet the challenges that you face and to meet them well. That it really is possible not just to survive under pressure, but to thrive there as well. And that God himself wants to equip you to do just that. So here's the question then, how? How does God go about equipping us? How does God equip you to meet the challenges that you face well? How does God equip you to survive and to thrive under pressure? And that, my friends, is what verses 5, 6, and 7 are all about. See, in verses 5, 6, and 7, Peter is telling us It's through the cultivation of this virtue list that God equips us to thrive under pressure. It's why Peter says, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to your knowledge self-control and to your self-control perseverance and to your perseverance godliness and to your godliness mutual affection and to your mutual affection love. See, see, Peter tells us to make every effort to add these virtues to our faith because as these virtues are cultivated, as they grow in our lives, this is the means by which God is equipping you and me to meet these challenges well. To, to keep ourselves from being crushed under pressure. To do more than just survive what we're going through, but to thrive in the midst of it all. So here's what we're going to do. In each week of this series, We're going to take one of these virtues and we're going to define it. And then we're going to take that virtue and we're going to to illustrate it. We're going to spend a good chunk of time just rolling around in an illustration so we really see what this thing looks like lived out in real life. And then we're going to take a few minutes 
And we're just going to go, okay, this is what it is. How do I, in a practical way, cultivate this in my life? And as we begin this week, we're going to take the first virtue that Peter points us to. This virtue of goodness. So, when Peter tells us to make every effort to add to our faith goodness, what is this goodness that Peter's talking about? Well, the word that we have translated here is goodness, all right? It's, it's a word that, that's meant to capture ideas like quality of character or a life above reproach. One of my favorite translations for this word is moral excellence. When, when Peter tells us to add to our faith goodness, he's, he's trying to capture this idea that we're going to live a life where we seek to please God, to bring praise to God, and to point other people to God. Goodness is about living my life in such a way that my life would please God. It would bring praise to God. It would point other people to the God who I'm trying to follow. Now, now again, goodness, goodness is not about earning my salvation, even if you push the share button, all right? The good, goodness isn't about I earn my salvation. No, we're adding goodness to our faith. Our salvation is always from faith. It's about your faith in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection on your behalf. But biblical faith, genuine faith, it always changes who we are. We cannot remain the same when faith has taken root in our hearts. And one of the things that faith will do is it will cause goodness to grow in us. And so Peter says, hey, make every effort to add to this faith that you've experienced. Make every effort to add to it goodness. Make every effort to, to grow in living a life that's going to please God. And that's going to bring praise to God. And that's going to point the people who are around you to who your God is. Now, when, when I think of, of people's lives that illustrate this virtue of goodness... One of the people who comes to mind for me is the Old Testament prophet Daniel. Daniel's life is chronicled for us in a book that, that um, bears his name. And, and really throughout the book of Daniel, you see Daniel live into the virtue of goodness in a number of ways. But for today, we're, we're going to concentrate just on Daniel chapter 6. And so if you want to follow along with us, you can open up your Bible to Daniel 6. It'll be on the screen. You can pull it up on your device, whatever way you're most comfortable with. All right? But be, before we dive into chapter 6, let me give you a little bit of the backstory on Daniel. Daniel is a 6th century B.C. Jew who as a teenager has his country uh, military, the military from Babylon comes in, defeats his country, just devastates them. As a teenager, Daniel is kidnapped. He is forcibly taken from his home, his family, his culture, everything that he knew. He's taken to Babylon where he is held for the rest of his life as a political prisoner. He is forced to learn a new language, a new culture, and he's told this is the line of work you're going to engage in for the rest of your life. Now, for Daniel, in a lot of ways, life was difficult in Babylon. And Daniel easily could have walked away from faith. Instead, though, in this book, you see Daniel consistently lean harder into his faith instead of walk away from it. You see Daniel working to add to his faith goodness. Now, the, the way that kind of plays itself out in Daniel's life, you see this cycle that keeps repeating itself in Daniel's life. Daniel will find himself in this place where God has put him. Daniel will try and live into goodness in that place. And then God will bless that and you'll see Daniel succeed vocationally. And then Daniel will find himself in a new place where God has him. And Daniel works really hard to live into goodness. And God blesses that and Daniel succeeds vocationally. So there's just this upwardly mobile spiral that works itself out in Daniel's life. Now what's fascinating about this is the line of work that Daniel was in. 
Anybody remember what kind of work Daniel did while he lived in Babylon? That's right. Daniel was in politics. And that should be good news. Because part of what this means is that, is that if you can truly cultivate goodness in a life of politics, you can cultivate a life of goodness anywhere. So, Daniel chapter 6 begins like this. It pleased Darius. Darius is the king at that time. He's the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. They've taken over the Babylons. Now they're in control. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps made, were made accountable to them. So the 120 are made accountable to the three so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So here's what you have going on here. And, and this is a different world than ours, so just try and track along with me. But you have Darius, he, he's in charge of the known, whole known world. And, and Darius, he, he doesn't want to be a stopgap. He doesn't want to be a pinch point in leadership. He realizes he can't do all of this himself. And so he basically appoints 120 governors, each of whom is going to rule over and collect, collect tax revenue for a particular geographic area of his kingdom. Now, again, this is where it gets a little bit weird. In Darius's world, Sometimes politicians were either inept or dishonest. <gasps> Shocker, I know, but just bear with me. It's a different world. So sometimes politicians were either inept or dishonest. He knows this. And so over the 120, he appoints three. And the job of the three is to keep an eye on the 120 to make sure that he does not suffer loss, to make sure they get, you know, they're sending in all the revenue they're collecting and supposed to be sending in. Now, Daniel is one of the three. Daniel is different than the three. And that's noticeable. In fact, you can't miss it. The king sees it. Everybody sees it. See, here's another thing about goodness. Genuine goodness can't help but be noticed by those around it. Goodness is something that happens inside of us, but, but it doesn't stay there. Genuine goodness, it leaks out of us. And, and wherever we're at, it can't help but be noticed by others. Daniel has this, and the king sees it. He sees Daniel does an amazing job. He sees Daniel can be trusted. Daniel is different than these other guys. And so the king plans on putting Daniel over the whole shooting match. Here's the thing, though. While genuine goodness, it's going to be noticed by others, genuine goodness might not always be appreciated by others. Sometimes your pursuit of goodness will get in the way of my pursuit of brokenness. Sometimes the goodness that is shining out of you, it, it puts a spotlight of the darkness that resides inside of me. Sometimes people will see genuine goodness, but they won't always appreciate it. And Daniel has that happen. His co-workers, they can see this. The king, they, he can see this. But his co-workers, they don't appreciate genuine goodness on Daniel's part. They don't like what it's going to get for him and not for them. They don't like the way it puts a spotlight on them in some ways. And so they begin to devise a plan to try and take Daniel down. And their plan goes like this. They tried to find charges, they, find, they tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Now, if that isn't a picture of moral excellence, I don't know what is. Again, just think about this. What line of work is Daniel in again? That's right, politics. Politics. Gang, 
If a mouse farts in politics, the whole world knows by 6 p.m. In politics, they are forever watching and analyzing and scrutinizing everything that you do and everything that you say and everything that you make the mistake of putting into writing. In politics, they go over your life, your history. They go through your garbage sometimes with a fine-tooth comb looking for anything they can find to use against you. And when they do find it, they save it. They hold on to it to release it at the most strategic moment so as to do the greatest amount of damage possible to their opponent. This is just how politics works. We're beginning to see this now. God bless us, it's an election year. We're just beginning to see this now, and we're going to begin to see this more and more and more the closer we get to November. And before you get on your high horse, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you sit on, both sides do this. It's how politics work now, and it's how they worked then. These guys are in politics. Daniel is in politics. They figure, we're just going to go through his life. We're going to find something, and we're going to take him down with it. But as they go over Daniel's life, his work life, his political life, his personal life, they go through it all with a fine-tooth comb, and they discover they can't find anything to use against this guy. He's above reproach. He really is who he says he is. What you see is what you get. And they're going, who does that in politics? But with Daniel, there's quality of character. So much so that these guys come to the conclusion, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Daniel was so intent on living a life that pleased God and brought praise to God and pointed people to God that his opponents go through his life and they come to the conclusion, there is no way we're going to nail this guy unless it has something to do with his religion. It just isn't going to happen. So they put a plan into action. And again, try and wrap your brain around this. It's a different world, right? What these guys do is they try and leverage the the insecurity and the pride and the vanity of the senior leader of their organization, King Darius. They try and leverage his pride and his insecurity and his vanity so as to manipulate him into doing what they want. And so basically it goes like this. They come to Darius and they're like, Darius, listen, you're just amazing. I don't know that there has ever been a better king than you. You're doing an awesome job. We've got to figure out some way to get the populace to realize just the the magnitude of your awesomeness. I'm not sure how we would do this. I don't know. What do you think? Maybe, Maybe we could come up with a law. A new law that would just just put the spotlight on how amazing you are. Uh, I don't know, maybe the law could go something like, um, if anyone, if anyone prays to any God or any human being during the next 30 days, except to you, except to you, your majesty, uh, that person will, I don't know, be thrown into the lion's den. What do you think? Now, Darius hears this, and Darius thinks to himself, you know, if we did that, that that would kind of make me a god for the next month. This is a good idea. I could sign that bill. It's only fitting, right? And so Darius, he jumps on board with this. The the only problem is this bill is going to create some problems for Daniel. Because we're going to see this in just a minute. But Daniel's a serial prayer. For, for who knows how long. The man's 80 now. Every day, Daniel prays. Every day, he carves out some time to be with his God and to talk to his God and to thank his God and to ask his God for help. And Daniel's opponents, they know this. And so the king, He signs the law, and it goes into effect. 
And Daniel hears about it. And Daniel then has to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? How is Daniel going to respond now? Because he's got options. I mean, Daniel, Daniel could pretend like, you know, you know he's, he's just going to be like, yeah, I'm just not going to pray. Daniel could just choose not to pray for the next 30 days. It's just a month, right? I mean, God, God clearly wants Daniel to, to live as long as he can and have the most fruitful ministry he, he can. And so, you know, we're going to give up a little on this end to gain on that end. I mean, for goodness sake, people have not prayed for a month for lesser reasons than that. Daniel could just stop praying. Or, or Daniel, he could hide it. He could go underground. He doesn't have to pray in a place where people could see him. He doesn't, he doesn't have to pray loud enough so that people could hear him. I mean, he's having a conversation with God. It's none of their business anyway. He could, just, he could just hide it. He could just pretend like he's not praying and let people think that he quit. Or Daniel, Daniel could get all rebellious. He could, he, could, he could grandstand. He could go out in the public and, and pray on a, a crowded street corner. He could stand up in the midst of a governmental meeting and just bust into prayer. He could throw it in their face, just be defiant. But Daniel doesn't do any of those things. Instead, we're told that when Daniel heard about this, that when he learned about the decree, had been published he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened toward Jerusalem and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed giving thanks to God just as he had done before Daniel hears about this and he goes home and he does the same thing that he had been doing as far back as anybody could remember. He went home and prayed just as he had done before. And in that we see something else about goodness. See, goodness is about a long walk of obedience in the same direction. For Daniel, living into goodness was something he was going to do consistently, regardless of how his circumstances unfolded. Goodness was something Daniel was going to consistently live into, regardless of the cost-benefit analysis. Goodness was something that Daniel was going to live into, regardless of the convenience or lack thereof. Just, this is a long walk of obedience in the same direction for Daniel. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to keep doing. And so he went home and he prayed just as he had done before. And when he did, his opponents are out there because they know him. They know his routine. And they, they, they hear him. They see him. And they're like, yeah, we got this guy. And they pulled out their cell phones and one of them, he's live streaming Daniel praying on Facebook and the other one snaps a picture and he posts it on Instagram. Hashtag busted. And they go running. They go running to Darius and they tell him, Darius, Daniel, who, who's one of those exiles from Judah. That guy, Daniel, he pays no attention to you, your majesty, he pays no attention to the decree you put into writing. He is still praying three times a day, and it's not to you. And as soon as Darius hears this, he knows he's been had. He's been duped. But he's stuck. He is legally boxed in completely. Nothing he can do now but send Daniel to the lion's den. Which he does, but he sends Daniel with this word of hope. He says, Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, may he rescue you. And so into the lion's den, Daniel goes. And unless God shows up in an incredible kind of way, Daniel's got about as much chance of surviving the lion's den as a candy bar does a middle school retreat. He's done. And so all night, the king's up and he's, he's, he's just worrying and he's kicking himself for getting duped. 
And he's just wondering, could Daniel's God really do something? And do you know what Daniel does that night? The text doesn't tell us. And I'm too cheap to be a bet man, but if I was, I bet you, I bet you Daniel prayed. I bet you when they're lowering him down into the lion's den and the lions are looking back up at him, Daniel's probably going, uh, Lord, please help. And I bet you when Daniel hits the floor and they shut the, the door of the lion's den above him and the lions come walking up and they don't devour him, I bet you he offered a thank you or two. In fact, I bet you that night, Daniel just had himself a regular praise and worship service, just him and the lions down there, thanking and praising God for his deliverance. And so morning comes, and the king goes running to the lion's den, and he opens it up and he shouts in there, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually, has he been able to rescue you from the lions? To which Daniel says, may the king live forever. My God has sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Now throw me a rope and get me out of here, right? See, God delivers Daniel. And in that we see another thing about goodness. Goodness is a place where God shows up. Goodness is a place where God loves to show up. He just loves to show up in the goodness of his people. Now, we should note how God shows up in our goodness, it's not always the same. God showing up in our goodness doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going to work out the way that we wanted it to or the way that it worked out for Daniel. We just spent time talking about this in our previous series. God loves to show up in the goodness of his people. But sometimes when God shows up in the goodness of his people, he does and, and he leverages his glory in the midst of that goodness through their deliverance. Other times though, God will show up in the midst of goodness and he'll leverage his glory through their sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews captures this, this dichotomy so well in chapter 11. And Hebrews 11, writing about God showing up in the midst of the goodness of people, here's what the writer says. And what shall we say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. And then he goes on to tell you about them. You can never believe a preacher when they say they don't have time to talk about something. He goes on, he says, let me tell you about all these people who through faith conquered kingdoms and administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of flames, who escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received their dead, raised back to life again. In other words, God showed up in their goodness and he leveraged his glory through their deliverance. But then you have the second half of that passage where the writer says, but there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Some were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were, they, they were killed with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. See, God showed up in goodness either way. And for some, God showed up in goodness and he leveraged his glory in their deliverance. And for others, God showed up in goodness and he leveraged his glory through their sacrifice. Either way, God shows up. We don't get to choose how, but he loves to show up in the goodness of his people. So Daniel, he's taken out of the lion's den. And there's not a scratch on him. 
And the king gets Daniel out and he's safe. And then the king deals with those men who duped him. And he takes them and he throws them down into the lion's den. And those lions are so hungry and so frustrated from looking at Daniel all night long and not being able to do a thing about it. At those guys, Daniel's enemies, they don't even hit the floor of the lion's den before the lions make fast work out of them. And then as chapter 6 comes to a close, you find Darius, this pagan king, this godless man, writing a, a, a memo, a letter, and sending it out to his entire kingdom. And in that letter, Darius tells everyone in his kingdom about Daniel's God. He, 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 he tells everybody in his kingdom, points them to Daniel's God. And his letter praises Daniel's God. And in his letter, he tells everyone in his kingdom, hey, if you know what's good for you, you're going to live in such a way that it would please Daniel's God. So what I want to do as we begin to move towards wrapping this up is just kind of think a little bit through Daniel here and the story of his that we've seen and, and just think about what did Daniel do to cultivate goodness in his life? And what can we do to cultivate this virtue in ours. So here we go. Number one. Goodness is cultivated in our lives. When God's opinion matters most. Goodness is cultivated in your life and in mine. When God's opinion matters most. See I, I, I don't think Daniel would have minded. If his co-workers liked him. I don't think he had a need to be hated by his co-workers. But when it came down to Daniel either being liked by his co-workers, approved of by his co-workers, or being liked by God, Daniel chose to be liked by God. And I don't think Daniel, I think he, he, like he wanted to obey the king. He wanted to please the king. But when it came down to, hey, I'm going to obey and please the king, or I'm going to obey and please my God, Daniel chose God. It's been said, the quickest way to forget how God thinks about you is to care about how others think of you. The quickest way to forget how God thinks about you is to care about what others think of you. Daniel prioritized God's opinion of his life and his decisions and his choices above everything else. Daniel realized that he performed for an audience of one. And as long as heaven was applauding, Daniel could live with whether or not other people were going to applaud for him. God's opinion mattered most. If we're going to cultivate goodness, we've got to worry first and foremost about God's opinion. When it comes to what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to respond, it's not about what is my spouse or my parents or my kids or my friends or my family or my coworkers or my neighbors or anyone else thinks. It's nice to be liked by those people. But at the end of the day, it's about what does my God think? Like Daniel, we were meant to perform for an audience of one. It's the applause of heaven that we should live for. And to the degree that we do that, it naturally cultivates goodness in us. Number two, goodness is cultivated through practice. Goodness is cultivated through practice. Remember when the edict comes out? Daniel hears about this new law and Daniel goes and prays just as he had done before. Another translation puts it this way. Daniel went and prayed as was his custom. See, for Daniel, living into goodness wasn't just something he did in an intense moment. It wasn't just something he was going to choose when the crisis arose. 
No, living into goodness, trying to live a life that would please God and bring praise to God and point other people to God. That was something Daniel was going to do when life was predictable, when things didn't seem to matter, when life was mundane. And he did it in those times so that when it was all on the line and things were critical and, and, and things were unpredictable, he would naturally be able to live into what he'd been living into all along. That's what practice is all about. I'm going to do this all the time so when it's game time, I'm able to live the way that I've practiced living up until that point. If we're going to cultivate goodness, it's about choosing goodness all the time. It's about, again, it's about that long walk of obedience in the same direction. As, as I practice living into goodness in the normal times, in the mundane times, in the times when it seems easy, that's what makes it natural when life is really on the line, when everything's crazy and raging about us. As we practice living into goodness, when those critical moments come, it naturally comes to us to live that way because this is who we've been all along. And then finally, goodness is cultivated when we live for the next life rather than this one. Goodness is cultivated when we live for the next life rather than this one. When Daniel chose the lion's den, he did so not knowing whether or not God was going to deliver him. Daniel, Daniel hasn't read the book. Daniel's living this out real time for the first time. Daniel chose the lion's den not knowing if God is going to deliver him. Chose the lion's den that he might gain an even better resurrection. Gang, sometimes, sometimes life will force us to choose. Are we going to benefit in this life or are we going to benefit in the next one? Sometimes life will force us to choose and to the degree that we are willing to make choices designed to gain us an even better resurrection, that'll cultivate goodness in us. So cultivating goodness. It's about God's opinion mattering most. It's about practice it's about choosing the next life over this one. Is it possible in the midst of this cold, dark, pressure-filled world, is it possible to not only survive, but to thrive? Daniel's life points us to the fact that yes, yes it is. And Daniel's life reminds us that, that a life of goodness is the first thing we need to add to our faith if we're going to do just that. Would you pray with me, church? Father, just as we look back at Daniel's life, if there is a place in our lives where we need to begin to cultivate goodness. God, I just pray you would bring that to mind for us. And Father, I just pray that we, right now, just wherever we're at as we watch this, that we would acknowledge that to you. Father, we want to invite you into that specific area of our lives. God, we want to ask you to help us to add to our faith goodness. To add to our faith a life in this particular area where we are going to live in such a way so as to please you and to praise you and to point other people to you. God, help us to add to our faith goodness. And Father, for some of us as, as we're hearing this, we're going, we realize we can't add to our faith goodness because we don't have that foundation of faith yet. But some of us, Father, we're at a place where we are ready for that to change. 
And so today, we just confess to you that we are broken, that we have sinned, and that we cannot make this right ourselves. Today, we want to grab hold of faith. We want to put our faith in Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. We want to surrender ourselves to following him. And today we would ask that you would help us to begin to add to our faith a life of goodness. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So as as we continue today, uh, Kat and Valder, they're going to lead us in worship. Um, if you would like to be part of giving and, and making ministry happen here at Faith, we would love to have you participate with us in that. I'm going to share with you something really cool that's come about as a result of that in just a moment. But there are a number of ways you can give here at Faith. You can go to the website for FCC.org, click on the giving app, and you can give that way. You can give on the Church Center app, and that is uh, downloaded through Planning Center. Or you can give through your mobile phone. You can text to give. You just text the number 84321. You put in an amount and you follow the prompts. Or you can always send your gift directly here to the church by mail. But let me tell you about something that's really cool. Uh, We have been giving towards the Compassion Fund to try and help people in need here in our church home, here in our community. Let me share with you something that we are doing this week to do just that. I've been in connection with um, uh, a middle school here in Farmington Hills, Warner, and the staff at Warner has shared with us how some of their families are struggling so mightily. There are families at that school where the primary breadwinner has died related to COVID-19, and they're just, they're not sure what to do. There are families in that school where both parents have been furloughed or laid off. And these families are struggling to figure out how are we going to do something as basic as put food on the table. And so this month, we have provided groceries for six of those families. They know they're getting groceries through Faith Covenant Church. They are so grateful for that. And church, I am so grateful for your generosity that has helped make that possible. Where we are being the hands and feet of Jesus to the world, to the community that we are in, in relevant, tangible ways. Now, next weekend, as we talk about our offering, one of the things we're going to talk about is how during next weekend's offering, all gifts that are designated specifically for the Compassion Fund, we are going to set aside to try and partner with Warner Middle School and these families again next month. So be ready for that next weekend. We'll, we'll make you aware of it again throughout the week and talk about it next weekend. But thank you so much for being part of this with us this month as we bless these families who are struggling mightily. So I want to encourage you to join the worship team as they lead us in a couple more songs.